This is David Lead of Leeds Culinaria with another segment of our Author's Answer series. Our guest today, who's sitting across the table from me, is actually from across the pond. John Tarode is the author of the new book, Beef and Other Bovine Matters. And if his name sounds familiar to you, it might be because you know him as the brain and brawn behind Smiths of Smithfield in London's historic meatpacking district. And if you happen to be a BBC listener, you will also know him from the BBC TV series, Master Chef, where he is also a co-presenter and a judge. Welcome, John. G'day. How are you? I'm doing very well. The first thing I want to do is I want to comment on your book jacket, because I don't think a lot of people will realize that when you open it up, it's actually a meat chart. Yeah, the idea, I mean, the thing is that I think that with with any book these days, you need to, it needs to be a bit touchy-feely. And I, I'm... I'm not of the opinion that a cookbook is just about, you know, to cook from. It's not a mm-hmm. Bible. It's an inspiration. And the idea of doing a book just on beef, it had to be, first of all, to instill a bit of confidence into people. And the first part of that confidence has to be shopping for the beef. And to do that properly, you need to understand where the cuts of meat come from. And that's why I've done the beef chart. But it folds out, sticks on your wall, and you can go from there. Or if you go on you know, my website, I can send you a little tiny pocket one, which you just go to the, 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 sh- the shop with. So. <laughs> for the butcher with. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. Who thought of that, by the way? That's, that's my own design. In actual fact, um, I, uh, I paid for the design myself because I was so insistent with the publisher that I do something new with the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I paid for the photography of it. I paid for the design of it. And, and then the publisher were nice enough to actually do the fold-out jacket. Excellent. Well, for those who haven't seen the book, and I suggest you go out and buy it today, um, is there's a lot of humor in the book. Actually, the end pages um, is a big M-O-O, big moo on the end pages of the uh, front and back of the book. And uh, it's designed beautifully. And um, so, and actually, I've already referred to the chart several times because I sometimes get my uh, beef cuts a little bit confused. And um, now the beef cuts are American beef cuts. They're not the British beef cuts. No. Well, I, what I've had to do with the jacket and what I had to do with all the photography was I had to change each one because the French have a different style of butchery altogether, which is seam butchery. Mm-hmm. The British butchery is quite um, old in its way. American butchery really comes originally from the Irish, where the Irish came over to um, to the States and they settled here. So a lot of that comes from the Irish. Mm-hmm. The Dutch, completely different. Germans, completely different. Australians, completely <laughs> different. So every single book for every single international one has a completely different chart. Oh, my God. Which I'm really proud of because I got to learn a little bit more as well. And when it came to doing things like the American and they do, uh, you guys do a hanger steak. Right. And of course, for us, the forequarter of the meat, a lot of the time, we didn't really utilize properly. Well, that's changed for us in the restaurant now because we are doing things, cutting things like hanger steak and what is called the Jewish fillet. You know, we are utilizing them, which for me has been a great discovery. That's excellent. And what's interesting for me is that you're Australian. Yep. And you've been in uh, the UK how long? I've been in the UK 17 years. And I think one of the reasons I was prompted to write the beef book was that when I got to Britain, is uh, the Brits were pretty down on themselves about their food. I mean, they should have been because some of their food was really rubbish. Yes, it was. I mean, yeah, it was pretty bad. You know, 1990s, I got there and it was, you know, it wasn't that, that egalitarian. It was hard to go out and just go and buy something nice to eat. It was hard to go into a restaurant unless somebody was dressed like a penguin to serve you. <laughs> and um, the, the, what I, you know, I wanted to be able to celebrate great produce. And I also believe if you live in a country, you eat the produce. Mm-hmm. So if I live in you know, the US, I'd eat US meat. If I lived in France, I'd buy French meat. If I live in Britain, I'd buy <laughs> British beef. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's you know, really important. I want to celebrate that. 
Well, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you because oh. you talk about in the book jacket this this incredible great uh, beef ingredient, uh, a British ingredient, which is beef. Mm. Now, we are Americans. We are known for our beef. Yeah. Tell me that how you see the difference between this great ingredient in, in Britain of beef and this great ingredient in America with beef. Well, the great thing about the, the historical fact is simple, that that beef cattle did not exist in the Americas until such time as they were bought here right. by the people who founded you know, this country. Or I will give you that. Fine. So, therefore, beef naturally inhabits Britain in its own way or the continent of India, which is a different breed altogether, which is called a boss equus. So mm -hmm. they're the ones who do the chianina in Italy. They're the ones that have the, the lump on the back of the head, the brahmin, right. and, of course, the animals that come from Argentina. And they were crossed to make the Texas longhorn. Okay. So... The British beef itself is the original breed of the sort of animals that, that wander free, as we call them in their pastures. That's that's absolute fact. The other thing is, I do I do think that that British beef lives a very very nice, humble, enjoyable life, where it wanders across a mountain, has something nice to eat. It gets a little bit cold. It doesn't get too hot for it. Mm -hmm. You know, it wanders around. It lays down its fat. It enjoys itself. Whereas the poor Texas Longhorn is wandering around getting, you know, whipped in its butt all the time and, you know, <laughs> rounded up by guys with leather pants on, which is frightening in anybody's mind. <laughs> i got to say, I think the U.S. beef is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I cooked a piece of beef um, on television this morning, mm -hmm. and I've got to say I thought the beef was beautiful, well-marbled, you know, well-cared for, delicious, wonderful piece of beef. But for me... You know, I've, I've got to be patriotic to at least the British because I think it's very, very good beef. Okay. That was today's show that you cooked on this morning. Yeah. And that was a ribeye steak, wasn't it? I could, yeah, what you guys call a cowboy steak. A cowboy steak. Cowboy steak. Okay. So it's a rib in, it's a bone in ribeye. And tell us, uh, our listeners, that trick that you did so it wouldn't do the elastic band trick. I, I was fascinated yeah. by this. <clears throat> Things like a ribeye and a sirloin, they have a, a, a layer of fat on the outside of them. And underneath that piece of fat is a piece of sinew. Now, if you clip the fat and then clip the sinew, so you make a small incision in it, what happens is that the meat doesn't, when it, when it hits the, the hot pan, it doesn't get pushed together by this elastic band, which is the sinew. And sinew is such a tight thing, and it's made up of collagen. And collagen, when it hits the heat, shrinks really mm -hmm. fast. Mm -hmm. So what, it, what, we, what I wanted to try and do was to make sure it was a relaxed piece of meat. And I'm sure many people have been to a restaurant and they've got a steak where it almost looks like a soup bowl. It's like a cup. That's right. It looks With like a cup. all the juices inside. That's right. And all the juices inside. That's a badly cared for steak. Okay. If you just took that piece of beef and it arrived at your table and you mm -hmm. took a knife and just cut that piece of sinew, the whole thing would completely relax. But that's the chef's job. And the chef should know better than that. Okay. So that little trick, it's in the book. It shows you what to do. Cut the piece of sinew. And the other thing you'll end up with is when you start the steak you have a size, a piece of beef, which is a certain size. Mm. Many people think that that piece of steak should shrink. It shouldn't shrink. It shouldn't. No, not at all. It's the collagen, it's the elasticity that goes in that piece of sinew that makes the whole thing shrink. Cut it, and it'll be a lovely piece of steak. Okay. And for our listeners, uh, if you can't envision what John is saying, imagine the steak being a clock face or the dial of, of a clock, and the center... What you do is you cut in about two inches, maybe? That's it. From, like, let's say 10 o'clock to the center of the face of the clock, and that's all it would do. That's it. It, it flips it open. 
And so, John, you mentioned in the introduction to the book that a lot of people are very confused about buying and cooking meat. Now, what are some of the biggest misunderstandings people have regarding, number one, the buying, and number two, the cooking? Well, I think the, the, the first real basic rule is to understand the structure of the animal when you're buying meat. The muscles that do all the work have huge amounts of flavor, but take long, slow cooking. Mm-hmm. So you think about an animal on all fours, that's its legs up to its top. So top side, its its shin, its shank, its chuck, uh, its neck, its blade, because it, you know, it's moving around. The muscles that don't do very much work, which are all the muscles along the backbone, mm-hmm. so the, the tenderloin, the fillet, the rump, those muscles can be cooked very, very fast, but don't necessarily have all the flavor. That's the first thing. So that's the first way you break it down. So if you want to make a stew, buy a, a muscle which does all the work. So that a shin or a blade or a chuck. For ground beef, the same. It's got fat. It's got texture. It's got you know the things that make it to make a good burger. If you're going to do a steak, buy a piece of you know uh, a tenderloin or fillet or even a ribeye. The next thing is that when you're buying meat, and especially in, in supermarkets and stores, don't buy meat which is just uniformly red. Mm-hmm. If it's just uniformly red, it's lean, it's probably very, very young, um, and it hasn't grown up very much, it will have no flavor in it, it will be dry, and it will be tough. It needs little tiny rivers of fat running through it, what we call marbling. Mm-hmm. And if you think about a piece of marble and little veins that run it through it, that's exactly what you want. It shouldn't be uniform red. If it is uniform red, don't even take it home. If you do take it home, what I, I will challenge you to do is to cook that piece of steak and then make yourself some gravy, and then get yourself a piece of cardboard, warm the cardboard up in the <laughs> oven, pour the gravy on the cardboard, and the cardboard with the gravy will taste better than the piece of steak you've just spent, you know, 10 bucks on. All right, so you're talking about marbling, you're talking about fat. Now, this is America. We're obsessed with being thin. We're obsessed with having high cholesterol. What do you tell people in America, let's say, who are concerned about these things when it comes to steak eating? Well, when a piece of steak, if you cook it properly and you give it a, a certain amount of time, those little rivers of fat melt mm. and they disappear into the pan. Okay. You don't need to eat them. Just take them out. The other thing is I do believe with steak that you should cook the steak with the fat on so you keep the flavor and it keeps it nice and moist. Otherwise, you've got dry meat. Mm-hmm. But once you've cooked it, if you want to cut the fat off and throw it away, go ahead. But the flavor is there. The flavor is there. And the fact is we as all humans need a certain amount of fat in our diet. Even the greatest athletes in the world, mm-hmm. you know, the greatest sprinters and, and you know, uh, hurdlers in the world, they will need some fat. And, and it's quite a high level, funny enough. Mm-hmm. We're happy enough to drink lots of milk. Right. You know, we're happy enough to have a cheese toasted sandwich. Mm-hmm. But we're saying, oh, I can't eat a little bit of fat off my beef. Uh-uh, guys. Go and do it. Just enjoy it. And there's probably more fat in the bun on a hamburger than there is actually in the meat on the hamburger. Because a lot of it just stays in the pan or the plate. Yeah. There's okay. probably more there's probably more fat and mayonnaise than there is in the burger. Yeah, there's a lot of fat and mayonnaise. Yeah. And you know, we as Americans do have this, I think all over the world now probably, but because we're America, we have this thing about cholesterol and we have this thing about for me, my cardiologist said absolutely no more red meat. I'm not listening to him. I'd rather take a statin than not <laughs> eat red meat. I'm sorry if he's listening to this, but that's the way it is. Um, anything more with cooking? Any other tips with cooking? Well, that, I think uh, the, the thing is, as I say or misunderstandings. The, I should say about cooking. Yeah, I think that you know the, the first thing is when you're cooking a steak, you've got to make sure that your pan is so ferociously hot 
that if you put your hand within about two inches of it, you can seriously feel the heat. Mm. Imagine it's like an, an open roaring fire. That's the sort of heat that you want to come off your cast iron pan you're going to cook the steak in. I think that when you are cooking a steak, you put oil on the meat first. You never put oil in the fry pan. Because okay. if you put oil in the fry pan, the oil will burn and taint the flavor of the meat. Put the oil on the meat first, then the salt, and then the pepper. Okay. Because the salt will eat into the steak, and the pepper is a spice. It needs heat to explode to give it flavor. If the pepper sits underneath the oil, it doesn't have enough heat mm -hmm. in there for it to explode and really come alive as a spice to add the flavor to the meat. As far as the actual cooking of the, the, the big mussels, which have got lots of flavor and work very, very hard, the fact is a big pot, some good stock, lots of potatoes to thicken it up or something similar, and just put it in the oven and walk away and leave it for four or five hours. Don't lift the lid. Mm. Let it sit. Let it just, you know, hematically close itself and let it go. It, it, it will never fall. It can't, in a way, unless it sits in the oven for three days, it can't really overcook. Okay. It's just going to be it's going to be beautiful whatever you do. Beautiful meat, beautiful potatoes, maybe a couple of mushrooms, a bit of stock, some salt and pepper in there. It will be a great stew. I can verify that. Now, I'm making beef shank mm. this weekend. Mm. Same thing, right? Mm. Just let them in 3-4 hours. Oh, delicious. Okay. Now, can I also make it on the stovetop? Well, I wouldn't make it on the stovetop because what you've got with stovetop is you've got heat from underneath only. And not radiant. Yeah, and you need mm. it to be radiant. And the other thing, on the stovetop, you can't go for a walk. You can't mm. sit back. You can't go to the office. The fact is, if you can put it into an oven and you can put set the temperature at you know 300 degrees and you can shut that oven door and you can confidently go outside and go for a long walk with a dog or you know go and chat up somebody in the pub or whatever you might do, right. then that's what life's for living, isn't it? Yeah. Life's not for standing over a stove and stirring a pot. You know, that, that's not what you're here for. You're here to enjoy life, and food should be something which you're enjoying, and you should relax while you're doing it. All right. I'll email you and let you know what it turns out. Good. You mentioned also in the introduction, you say that restaurant recipes belong in a restaurant, and it's something I agree with completely. And in the book, your recipes are very simple and very much to the point and very easy. Talk a bit about why restaurant recipes belong in a restaurant. Let's just talk firstly about why the recipes in the book are the way they are. Mm -hmm. I don't want to scare people. I think, you know, beef is a, is a, is a subject which some people are a little bit worried about. I want to de-sex it. I think that, that it should be female-friendly as well as being male-friendly. And I want people to open the book up and be inspired and find it simple to follow the recipes. And if they don't want to cook them, fine. I think there should be some challenging recipes in there. As far as why restaurant recipes belong in a restaurant, it's because a restaurant chef practices a recipe and puts it on his menu and cooks it every single day, day after day after day after day, maybe 200 days in a row. That recipe is so refined, mm -hmm. is so honed. Every single ingredient that goes in that recipe is, is well sourced. Every thought process that goes into it. You can have six or seven people contributing to that recipe. That recipe could be, you know, for instance, as simple as something like my belly of pork at Smith's which takes three days to cook. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes three days. My Chinese duck dish with choy salmon, or fresh oyster sauce, takes three days to cook. Look, I'll go back to this. Life is for living. Look, if you want to go and, and try and do some of the recipes that are done in restaurant, brilliant. But don't believe that you're going to cook them the first time. 
you know, a concert pianist doesn't necessarily believe they're going to play a, a classical piece the first time with absolute precision. They're going to make mistakes. They need to have their own feeling about it. And a restaurant recipe is about somebody's own feeling. It's about the, a dish they're created. I also think that restaurant dishes should be far more precise, far more skilled than anybody is able to do at home. That's why we go to restaurants. That's why we pay money because there should be somebody in the kitchen who does something which you can't do at home. Mm -hmm. And I think that leads onto the steak thing. You know, I'm fortunate enough to buy sides of beef from rare breeds, which very few people have access to. And I cook them in such a way that my chefs understand every nuance of that piece of beef, mm -hmm. understand what is good, what's not good, what does get trimmed, what doesn't get trimmed. You know, and, and that makes the difference between a great restaurant experience and, you know, cooking something at home, which is disappointing. See, I, I agree with you because every time a friend of mine says, I'm cooking from such and such chef's book, I roll my eyes. Yeah. Because I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's going to be one of those evenings. I'll have to go out and eat something after dinner because it's just never – I've never had an experience where I go, wow, that really is very much like such and such as re a recipe or what I've had in their in their restaurant. And uh, so it's good to see that actually a chef <laughs> believes that and writes a book for the commoner. Well, I think that the other thing is that if as a, as a home cook, you're going to find yourself two signature dishes mm -hmm. and you're going to cook them for every single dinner party, mm -hmm. then, of course, I get you. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to do that. That's not what entertaining at home is all about. Entertaining at home is about going in the kitchen and making mistakes and going to the dinner table and lying about what you've cooked because it's gone wrong. There's right. my, there's, you know, lie about it. Change course, the name. It's supposed to be like that. <laughs> of yes. Course. Of course it wasn't raspberry mousse. It's raspberry soup. Of course it's raspberry soup. And that's soup. wet in a bowl. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's not a raspberry souffle. No, it was supposed to be raspberry eggy pudding. <laughs> Okay, now for our listeners, discuss the five different types of animals in the beef world, the way you've divided them. Well, the way I've divided them up is, is you know, fairly simple. First of all, beef cattle and dairy cattle. So, first of all, we have a cow. Right. Now, a cow is a female, a cow produces milk, and a cow is the black and white thing that we see on hilltops around the place. Like a Holstein. That's right. It is a Holstein. Mm -hmm. But typically, it's the one which is mottled, has the lovely pattern that we all identify with being a cow. And a cow is female and produces milk. Mm -hmm. Then we have a bull. Now, a bull, he's the man who has all the fun because there's one bull, usually very well bred, um, of high pedigree, and if it's for dairy animals, produces lots of milk, and for beef cattle, it produces good beef. So they, there's very few of those guys around. Uh, then we have the heifer, mm -hmm. and the heifer is the female, and that's the one that does all the breeding. Now, a heifer, again, predominantly for beef production. And a heifer will, will give birth to probably two calves during its lifetime before itself is then used as beef cattle. Then we have the steer. And the steer, unfortunately, is the poor bull who didn't quite get his levels of you know pedigree up to enough. So what they did was turn around and, and chopped the little bits off. What have I missed off? Cow, steer, heifer, bull. And veal. Ah, and now a veal calf. Now the veal calf, here's the interesting one. Dairy cows, of course, have to be pregnant every single year to continue to produce milk. Mm -hmm. Now, when they're pregnant, they give birth, and the, the birth of those animals, we have males and females. And the male in the dairy world doesn't produce milk. It's useless. And that's where we get our velas from. So they are dairy animals, which if they grew up to be a large animal, don't produce very good meat. They mm -hmm. just don't. But if they're slaughtered very young say whether it be 12 or 16 months, and a vela or a yearling um, animal for yearling beef, then it's absolutely perfectly delicious meat. 
Okay. Talk a little bit about the controversy with veal. Well, the, the controversy of veal really comes out of Holland, and it came out of whereby the British dairy industry had too many male calves, and the US dairy industry overproduced milk and produced huge amounts of skim milk. And the Dutch realised they could buy cheap calves, cheap skim milk, put the two together, and they could produce this massive animal made with huge amounts of protein from the skim milk, keep them in a crate, feed them for about 12 months, and grow these massive beasts and sell it as veal. But that's not true veal. Mm-hmm. And true veal, as you know, any great Italian will know, is a very, very small thing. The eye of a veal chop is a tiny thing. It's, it's smaller than a pork chop. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very, very small thing. It's from a small animal. Um, so the controversy has been about the crating or the, mis- the mistreating of a veal animals. And that's completely outlawed in Britain. And it's completely outlawed in the US. Okay. So the way in which that's produced. So vealers uh, really are just young animals. Mm-hmm. And they stay very, very white if they're just um, kept on milk or they're just suckled. And they start to become pink or rosé, rosé veal, mm-hmm. if they start to go out in the grass. But if they're sort of very, very young, they're delicious, yeah. absolutely delicious. The best, truest veal is one that is always milk-fed, not grass. Absolutely right. Okay. But, you know, here's an interesting fact, and I know this is very controversial for all the vegetarians, is that in the UK last year, uh, 320,000 male dairy animals were slaughtered at birth and put into the ground as ground landfill because nobody will eat them. Really? Yeah. So there's people starving in the world and 320,000 animals were buried. Guys, go out there, buy yearling beef, make veal schnitzels and have a really good time. Hope everyone heard that. That's Feed from his mouth. the world. <laughs> Osabuco and Venus schnitzel. There you go. Uh, talk... Talk a little bit about prime versus choice versus select. Well, yeah, select. Uh, the thing is, in the UK, we don't have your grading system right. at all, which is a real shame. And, and I'm really pleased that, that the US government have done this. USDA do it. If you've got any issues, go on the USDA website and it tells you exactly how it works. The deal is, is that prime is used predominantly for the catering industry. Mm-hmm. It's the stuff you buy in the restaurants. If you go to Smith & Walensky, you're going to buy yourself a prime steak. If you go to Sparks, you're going to get yourself a prime steak. Uh, the supermarkets, mainly, is choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, choice is a good quality meat, but probably not as good as prime. And then, of course, select is you know, bog standard. People have to eat. That's absolutely fine. If somebody wants to try and really raise their game and they want to experience you know, Prime, the, the best thing to do in this day and age is use the websites. Have a look around, cruise around. I'm sure there's box schemes out there where you can buy whole four ribs, which are matured, and then you can take them home, you can cut them up or whatever you want to do with mm-hmm. them, and then you can, you can get hold of it. But I do know that very, very few supermarkets and stores will sell Prime in this country. Really? Yeah. Because of? It's so expensive. Oh, okay. It's very, very expensive. And because the way in which it's graded, as soon as it's graded, it's worth a lot of money. And, of course, it takes a long time to grow those animals. You know, prime beef is a very, very expensive thing. And the supermarkets realize that if they buy it in, they can't sell it, and they have to throw it in the bin. It's a big loss of money. And then, so this is a good point. Let's talk about dry aging versus wet aging. Yeah. And explain that to our listeners. Well, you well in, in the U.S. you have what we you, what I term as box beef, mm-hmm. and it's beef that comes in a box which has no bones on it whatsoever. <clears throat> At the end of the animal's life, it is um, all cut. It's it's basically 
put in the big fridges and it's left to set as a half a carcass. So half a body and it's left to set for about 12 hours. Now, with the uh, wet aging, after those 12 hours, every single piece of meat is taken off the bone. All the bones are discarded and the, the fat, excess fat is trimmed. It's put into primal pieces and packed into vacuum sealed bag with a gas inside it. And that there is then put into boxes and stored in fridges for two, maybe three, maybe four weeks. What's the gas that's, that's in there? I'm not quite sure. Okay. To be fair, I have no idea what, what gas they use. And these days, I, I wouldn't want to make a comment just in case I get it wrong. Okay. Um, and then the other way to do it is that you'll take the, the side of beef. It'll be broken into a forequarter and a hindquarter. And then those, those hindquarter and forequarters are then basically hung up in cool rooms and left for between two and three weeks, and that's dry aging. And then once after that two or three weeks, we start to break them down but keep the bone on. Mm -hmm. And it's not until the day we're actually cooking the meat itself do we start to debone it and take it off the bone. Okay. So wet age, it's in boxes with no bone on it, and the bone's been taken off a long time ago. Dry age, the bones stay on it and stay on it for three or four weeks. And it's exposed. And it's exposed, and the natural air circulation, it dries it out a little bit more. It lets the natural bacteria get on with it. And for me, it becomes a little bit more of a firmer piece of meat, and it's just a bit more settled. It also, for me, gives it a bit more depth of flavor and a different sort of unusual taste of flavor. Because it loses moisture, mm. and that augments the flavor. Yeah, it sort of concentrates the flavor. Right. It's the same as sun-drying a tomato. Okay. So you get a tomato and you think about a big tomato, you cut it in half, and then you think you start to half-dry it. And that's really what you're doing with beef. So uh, a, a, a carcass of beef which weighs 300 pounds, if it's dry age, it probably ends up being about 230, 240 pounds. Okay. You lose that much weight in the, drying pro wow. in the aging process. And uh, we can't get dry-aged beef. At the store? Probably not. It's almost all wet aged. Yes. Okay. Now, or this is the part of the program where all vegetarians are instructed to fast forward because we are going to talk a little bit about the slaughtering process, the humane slaughtering process. Well, in a way, you know what? I, I, I want vegetarians to consider this because I think there's a really interesting thing. If the people are vegetarians and they are drinking milk and they are eating eggs, then in actual fact, they are continuing for the beef production to continue and they are continuing for animals to continue to live because those animals are producing that sort of thing. Um, I think it's a really important thing to understand that the process of ending an animal's life is as vital to the farmer as every other process they have done. From giving birth to that animal, to feeding it, to really looking after it. We're talking about a, a, a human being's livelihood here, a farmer who is growing, their, having their family and looking after their home because they are producing food, which is cattle. So they care about it. When that then ends its life and they put it in you know, the truck and they take it off to the slaughterhouse, the, the important thing is that whoever takes the next step should do it in a way which is very respectful and very calm. So the animal's calm, the animal doesn't know what's going on, it's well looked after because the animal if it is under stress, will start to get adrenaline running through its body um, and then lactic acid. Mm -hmm. Lactic acid and adrenaline cause bad enzyme, means the meat gets really, really tense and really, really tough, and you end up with tough meat. Now, I know now what the difference is between an animal which is stressed and an animal which is not stressed at the end of its life. In taste. In texture. In texture. It's not in taste at all. And if you take a piece of beef or a piece of steak 
regardless of how it's cooked, and you rub that piece of steak on the top of your mouth after you start to chew it, and it's like the pith of a grapefruit mm-hmm. in little teardrops that animals stressed when it was ending its life. So it's a little bit mealy. Yeah, that's what a great word. Thank you very much. You're it's welcome. mealy. That's a brilliant word. It's mealy. It's like couscous. Mm-hmm. And if it's like that, actually, wherever you bought that meat from, I would not go back because it's probably happening all the way through because they will have one supplier. Mm-hmm. So go and f- swap it over. But, a, you know, an animal which has ended its life well, it has done a job. And don't forget, these cattle, some of these cattle take three years to grow. Mm-hmm. That's a long time for some you know, person who is, you know, uh, who has a responsibility to end an animal's life for human consumption, they've got to be respectful. So for me, it's a really major part, a really major part. And I visit all the slaughterhouses. I know the people really, really well. I watch how it works. And if I'm not happy, I stop using them. This is for Smiths? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I've got to make sure I know where my stuff's coming from. Okay. And I also understand that your menus are like our wine lists that tell us, tell your customers where the beef is from, who the farmer is. Do you prefer, you prefer I'm assuming, grass-fed? Well, I, I really, well, I say grass-fed, but they are, they do get finished on some grain at the mm-hmm. end of their lives. They do, absolutely. Is it organic grain? Uh, probably, most of the time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, these guys, you know, have cattle which will cost, you know, they're worth a thousand pounds by the time they're, you know, they're finishing them off. So they're worth a lot of money. A um, thousand so pounds, that's... A thousand weight pounds, or no, British? no, as in British pounds. Okay, so that's, that's two thousand. That's three thousand dollars. About two thousand bucks. Yeah, that's a lot of money. But the deal, the you know, the, the the deal is with Smiths is that my top floor restaurant. So I've got four different layers, and they all sort of go down. The top floor restaurant has on its every single day four or five different steaks, and those four or five different steaks they could be maybe you've got a rump. And the rump could be from a belted Galloway. It could be aged for 28 days, and it could be from Gary Wallace in Sirencester. Mm-hmm. Or we could be having um, uh, a rib of beef, which has come from Steve Taunton in Dorset, and it's aged for 32 days, and it's 10 ounces. Mm-hmm. So we try and tell everybody as much as we can about the steak. And eventually, we get customers who come back and go, hey, look, they've got a white park on, oh, look, they've got a go-away rump on, yay, and they get really excited. Right. And it's sort of like, it's almost like walking into a restaurant saying, wow, they've got that great red wine I used to drink. The great you Cabernet. Know? Or- yeah, that's right. You know, they've got that Merceau 2004. People are starting to understand it, and that's great. And that's wonderful. Now, speaking of breeds as you were, what are the most common breeds that we eat here in America? In the States here, you guys have um, Charolais Cross mainly. And the Charolais cross is a very, very big animal. Um, I'm trying to think what other breeds that you, you necessarily use. The, the Texas, Texas Longhorn, the Texas Longhorn, the Charolais crosses, the Belgian Blue, mm-hmm. which is a very, very big, you know, muscly animal. Um, and then if you're bringing beef in from somewhere like uh, Argentina or Brazil, it's Kianina, mm-hmm. uh, which is, again, Bosecas, which is the one with a big lump on the back of its neck. Um, Texas Longhorn originally came from the Longhorn cattle, which came out of the out of uh, the UK, but it was crossed cross with the continental breed, so it could deal with the, the dry heat and really cope with the dryness. Mm-hmm. But you know, the Texas Longhorn is one seriously, seriously fantastic animal. And you like the beef? Oh that. yeah, I mean that is rich and you know full of flavour, and it's it's gutsy, but it's not you know it's not buttery tender. It's mm-hmm. not you melt in your mouth. It's proper chewing beef, and that's exactly what beef's all about. It's not for the denture crowd. Well, you know, I I think if you're, you know, if you want to have a soft piece of meat, 
then go and get yourself a fillet. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you've got a sirloin or a tenderloin, whatever you want to call it, just cut it really thinly. Mm-hmm. Don't cut big hunks and then chuck it in your mouth and think it's going to be, you know, buttery soft. Right. You can't even do that with a bit of turkey. I mean, you know, for God's sake, just do me a favor, slice it nice and thinly. Across the grain. That's it. And, and just slice it, you know, wrap it around your fork like you would a bit of pasta and eat it and savour it and enjoy it and just really have have a bit of a love affair with it. Imagine it's like, you know, snogging that first girl in the in the sixth grade. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's, it's food porn, basically. Absolutely. All right. So let's do an association. Game. I do want to clarify something. Yes, I said this is. morning. Snogging actually is French kissing. It has nothing to do with the other thing. Okay? Everybody thought I was talking about the other one, the next one. No, no, no. <laughs> Snogging is kissing passionately. Okay. So we're not even talking bases here. We're just talking before we get to first base. Uh, yeah, that's why I said grade six. I didn't say, you know, no, don't be doing that. that <laughs> well, now. I kind no, of thought. No. My children would be shocked. <laughs> All right, word association game. I'm going to name a kind of dish, and you tell me the cut that you would use. Wow, okay, go on. All right, pretty simple, I think. Burgers. Uh, chuck. Okay. Chuck steak or skirt. What percentage of fat? 40. 40%. 40% fat, and that 40% wow. will go down to about 8% by the time you cook it off, because you need to let that fat melt. Because most stores here in America will sell 15%. Is that right? Yeah. Well, good on them. Wow, 40%. Okay. 40% fat I use. I don't use any salt whatsoever. I use mushroom, soy, or oyster sauce. Okay. A braise. Uh, shin is really, really good for it. Um, Which is shin, shank. Shin, shank, right. I quite like. Blaze is quite good as long as it's cut up quite small. And sometimes skirt, but not very often. Okay. Um, roasts. Uh, well, for me, the best roast in the world comes from a five rib, a five bone rib of beef. I mean, okay. that's a whole big rack of beef cooked for about three hours, really slowly. Delicious. Okay. A stroganoff dish. Well, beef stroganoff is an interesting one because classically, a beef stroganoff comes from fillet, mm-hmm. and it comes from the tail of the fillet, mm-hmm. and only the tail because the tail was too small to make. Um, a steak from. Some people use the round. If you do use round, it's going to be tough. It's going to be chewing and be awful. Go for a small piece of fillet and a tiny, tiny portion. Okay. Kebabs. Well, see, this is a really interesting one. Some people say round. I am probably more towards the stage of going towards blade or mm, maybe the the trimmings of a sirloin or a, a, a short rib. All right. A French daube, which is like a stew? Yeah. Well, a daub, again, is really, a, is, is, for me, a daub is the short rib. Mm-hmm. That's where it should come from. And you do it one or two ways. Take that meat off the bones itself or do it with the bones on and then just take the bones out when it's cooked. And peel it off. And peel off all that little bit of car- collagen and a little bit yeah, of, yeah, fact. which is kind of nasty. Steak. Your favorite steak. My favorite steak comes from the rump. Absolutely comes from the rump. But saying that, the cowboy steak, you know, for me, is a fairly serious piece of meat. If you want a, you know, a decent big steak full of flavor on a bone and you want to sit around and eat lots of meat and drink, you know, good quality red wine, go for a cowboy. Okay. And um, meat pies, of course, in Britain. Well, there's two types of meat pies. There's the Aussie meat pie, which is ground beef. And the Aussie meat pie, which I have these little ones called party pies. Mm -hmm. And then we have a big one, which has got, you know, a a lardy base and a flaky pastry top. Um, As far as otherwise, you'd be going for something like my Aunty Mary's meat pie, which is using chuck or blade or something similar to that. So four-quarter meat. Okay. So the last thing I want to ask you, is let's assume that I am from Mars. I've never had a steak, never cooked a steak, don't know what a steak is. Take me from 
beginning with that steak to cutting into it. What okay. do I do to make a perfect steak? Medium rare. Okay, fine. So what we want to do, we're going to take a piece of tenderloin, strip loin, whatever you want to call it. Tenderloin, is that a fair enough comment for you guys? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So what you've got now in front of you sitting on the board is you've got a piece of meat which has got uh, a, a piece of fat sitting along the top of it, mm-hmm. and then the rest of it is actually red from the meat itself. There's no fat around the outside because it's come off a bone. What you want to do then is you want to leave that on a board for about an hour when it comes out of the fridge and don't touch it. Just let it sit there and come up to room temperature. 15 minutes before you want to cook it, take your cast iron pan, fry pan, skillet, griddle, and put it over the highest heat you possibly can. And I mean 15 minutes. 10, 15 minutes so it gets seriously hot. Guys, it's made from iron. It needs a 1,000 degrees before it starts to break up and crack. It's not, you know, it's a fairly serious piece of metal. Don't worry about it. Heat your oven at the same time to about 400 degrees. Mm -hmm. Take that piece of meat when you're about to do it. And where the fat is, right in front of you, if you're standing in front of that piece of meat, think about where your zipper on your trousers is and you're going to make an incision through the fat and through the little tiny bit of sinew and just touch the meat, the actual flesh of the meat. And that will give you the separation so when the, um, uh, the sinew starts to shrink, the whole meat doesn't. Keep the piece of beef flat on your board. Oil all over it. What kind of oil? Vegetable oil. Nothing stronger than vegetable oil because it will take the flavor of the meat and you want to taste the meat. Then once you've taken that, rub that meat, the, the oil over it and make sure you push the meat back in so it's plump in its original shape. Good sprinkling of salt. Good amount of ground black pepper on top. Turn the steak over again. Do the same thing. Oil, salt and pepper. Then pick it up and drop it into that fry pan, just let it rest. Never shake the pan, don't touch it, do nothing to it whatsoever, and make sure it sings and dances like ABBA. It's got to have huge amounts of noise to it. It's got to be like Mamma Mia coming off. I mean, it's got to really make a great noise. Let it smoke, open the windows, it will smell divine. You'll start to smell the fat, you'll start to smell the spice from the pepper, you'll start to smell the whole Maillard reaction, which is going to the protein going brown. Mm. Two minutes later, you turn it over and let it sit in that pan again, don't touch it, for another two minutes. After those two minutes, pick it up, put that whole skillet, the fry pan, the whole works, into your oven for two more minutes. Bring it out of the oven, take it out of your fry pan, put it on the chopping board, and let it rest for two minutes, and that is it. Then all you've got to do then is slice it really, really thinly. It will be perfectly medium rare, absolutely guaranteed every single time. Excellent. Well, now I'm hungry. Good. And it's only quarter of five. Now, here's the next bit. bit. So then with your your skillet, Mm -hmm. whatever you do, don't throw away that fat because that is the dripping. Right. Now, the best thing to do with that fat, if you really want to have yourself a treat, while your steak is resting, get yourself two of the biggest eggs you possibly can, put the uh, the skillet on the lowest heat, crack the eggs into that beef fat, Mm -hmm. and then fry the eggs in with that fat. You've got all the juices and all the flavor of the beef that's sitting underneath those eggs, and fry that, cook that, serve those with your steak. I think you have some deal going with a cardiologist somewhere. (laughs) You're just sending them in and he's sending them back out. (laughs) Thank you, John. Thank you. This is David Leed of Leeds Culinaria with another episode of our Author's Answer series. We've been talking to John Tarode, uh, author of Beef and Other Bovine Matters. Don't forget to check our website at leedsculinaria.com for future episodes of our Author's Answer series that will keep you hungry for more. <laughs>